Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com or on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of this podcast and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is solving the biotech industry's talent crisis by organizing and providing access to the world's life sciences expertise. Very excited to welcome Dennis Saller, Chief Scientific Officer at Rome Therapeutics. Great to have you on today, Dennis. I'm happy to be here. Great. So Dennis, to kick us off, talk to us about you know the arc of your career, what got you interested in biotech, and what got you to where you are today? Sure. Well, my academic roots are at Columbia University in Caltech. I was trained as a molecular and cellular immunologist. I studied autoimmune disease um, as a graduate student postdoc and early faculty career. And I've always been motivated by a strong passion to turn emerging scientific insights into novel therapies uh, to alleviate the burdens of patients, improve their lives. To me, there's this is, has to be the most noble of all endeavors that a scientist can pursue. With that, I left academics and joined Merck Research Laboratories in 1990, uh, worked there for 25 years. Of course, big farm is a business, right? To be successful, you have to turn a profit, a huge profit, actually. But what I love about the industry is that the only way that um, you make money, right, is to cure disease, right, to come up with new and novel therapies. And so the business imperatives and the moral, scientific, ethical objectives are so perfectly aligned. The better we do at curing disease, the more effective profits that we turn over, right? And so just a great place for us to work and a great career to aspire towards. And I've had an incredibly rewarding experience during times at Merck. I got to work on some of the most important problems in human health. A variety of therapeutic areas, uh, immunology touches almost everything, right? And so there was a variety of different areas that I uh, got to work in with an incredible number of truly brilliant scientists that came in and out of Merck over the years that even now work with in different companies and different interactions that front to form sort of a large network. I worked on, I led drug discovery programs that played a role in bringing over 25 molecules into the clinic, proud of that, seven of which are marketed drugs today. And there are a lot of ups and downs along the way. Drug discovery is quite a roller coaster ride. There's a lot more failures than successes, but there's, to me, there's nothing more satisfying than seeing something cross the finish line right? and seeing those data that you've actually improved patients' lives and had the outcomes that you were hoping for. Now, the biotech world evolved and matured during my tenure at Merck, long tenure, and it became really apparent that there was so much innovation, even most of the innovation actually, emerging from the sector. So I got heavily involved in working with the Merck business development in setting up and supporting biotech collaborations, discovery collaborations mostly in that early space. Eventually, this actually led to my decision to leave Merck and move on to Celgene, a biopharma company that I really think perfected the model for biotech collaborations, the so-called distributed research model. And much of what made Celgene so successful was a business model in which we brought in innovation into the company by identifying, funding, and providing scientific support, strong scientific support, to biotech companies that had great ideas. This was often an exchange for an option to buy the asset or in some cases to buy the whole company um, if it was unsuccessful. And it allowed Celgene to quickly move into promising areas of research without having to do a large and expensive and time-consuming internal build. It also allowed us to get out quickly, right? So the science didn't pan out, right? Didn't have to sort of disassemble a large build that was done internally. Just a fantastic model. We did some of this at Merck, but Celgene really was doing this as part of their core business strategy and scientific strategy. The result was an incredibly strong and diverse pipeline of drug programs, which really was the basis of what made us such an attractive merger, right? An acquisition for BMS, right? A really sort of powerful joint company. It takes an army to make a drug. And over the years at Merck at Celgene and BMS, I was able to establish a large network of colleagues across all areas of drug discovery disciplines, on biology and translational medicine, chemistry, drug metabolism, 
data science and so on and so on. It takes a lot. And among actually this network of collaborators was Rosetta Kapler. I actually got to know her very well as part of a successful collaboration between Salgene and Nimbus, a company in which she served as the CSO. And so my relationship with Rosetta really is what eventually led to my decision to uh, join the Rome a couple of years ago. Great. Thanks, Dennis, for that background. So you touched on a number of points that I want to just double click on, one of them being the ups and downs in drug development. Roughly one in every 5,000 or so assets ever sees the light of day from a marketability perspective. And I'm curious, as you work with particularly folks that are new to biotech, how do you help them think about the possibility of failure? Because you know, risk is inherent in everything that we do in drug development. Any tips that you've learned about positioning so that it's not a very frustrating endeavor, particularly for those that are very early on in their career? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's one of the most important and hardest thing, actually, to, uh, to mentor somebody new in this field. And, and I actually think I was, in the usual sense, fortunate. In the first program that I worked on, right, they were looking for blockers of MHC class 2 peptide binding for autoimmune disease. It was a failure, right? Uh, we learned a credible amount along the way. It made really potent compounds, right, that could sort of block antigen presentation, but they were on biochemical assays, but didn't translate over to good cellular activity for reasons that we actually uncovered and understood. And so we killed it after just the first year or so that I was there. And while that was disappointing, right, it taught me the value of a quick kill, right? Uh, there were others that were working on this. We were the first to get out of the field. And I think that was a real advantage to be able to refocus uh, the resources. And so failing early, failing smart, as long as you do good science and have a good therapeutic hypothesis and test it, right, then failure is not a bad thing, right? You can't evolve. You just have to understand that if you have enough irons in the fire and enough good hypotheses, some are going to pan out eventually in most cases. Great. Another question, just as a follow-up to your background, you know, you've obviously seen a lot of diversity in terms of size of companies that you've worked at, from Merck to Celgene to BMS. And now at Rome Therapeutics, before we, we dig into what you're working on there, I'm curious, what are some of the perhaps non-obvious lessons that you have been able to take from big pharma that have translated well to being CSO at Rome? Even at a big company like Merck and like Celgene and BMS that has a large number of drug discovery programs, there is still competition for ideas and researchers and resources, right? It's not infinite, right? Even though it's a large finite number, but there's also a lot more programs. And so in all cases, big or small, the key is to really understand, right, and plan out what experiments are critical to moving things forward, uh, what are nice to haves, and what can be sort of put on the back burner. And that's really sort of acute in a biotech company that can look at the balance sheet and know how many years we have before the cash out date and new rounds of finding and so forth. But it was sort of not really that much different than at Merck when you had so long, right, to hit your objectives, right, or kill them and move on to another program. And so the basic principles are still there. Um, smart science, focus science, and really understanding the values of these investments. And when things are going sideways, right, knowing when to sort of pull the plug on those particular studies. Great. Thanks for sharing that perspective. So switching gears now, you mentioned Rosanna was able to bring you to Rome. Talk to us about your decision to join Rome and what excited you about what she and your colleagues were working on at the time. Yeah, sure. It all started actually with a dinner at one of Rosanna's favorite restaurants, Aquitaine in Brookline. First learned about the company that she was incubating. I knew that she sort of moved on to the role as an entrepreneur in residence at uh, Google Ventures and knowing how bright and capable Rosanna was, I was paying a lot of attention right to what would emerge from that. 
learned that it was based on these uh, repetitive elements, which make up a large part of the so-called dark genome, which are derived from viruses and other generic parasites that have embedded permanently into our DNA. And this was a field of research that, frankly, I was not particularly familiar with from a distance, right? Uh, but I hadn't thought much about. Uh, in fact, I think this field of biology certainly has received minimal attention in general from those in the pharma industry. But it intrigued me, right? And I dug deeper into the science. And then it soon became screamingly apparent that there was something here of fundamental importance to biology and medicine. I mean, over half of our genome are composed of these repetitive elements. They're mostly silent in healthy adults, but they become activated and expressed when cells are stressed. And when activated, different classes of repeats trigger a variety of biological processes. Some of these repeats look like viruses. They trigger pro-inflammatory viral mimicry responses that, when chronically activated, can drive autoimmune disease, promote tumor growth. And in fact, one sort of mystery in the field of immunology inflammation was so-called sterile inflammation. If you look at, especially as people age, you can see evidence of chronic inflammatory conditions, elevated C-reactive proteins, elevated cytokines that kind of make it look like there's a viral infection going on, but there's no virus. And this is the answer, right? It's these endogenous viruses that are getting activated that are driving this state, which has enormously important consequences for health and disease. Uh, when activated in the nervous system, they can lead to neuronal cell death with uh, devastating consequences in neurodegenerative diseases. This really got hammered home in subsequent discussions that I had with our uh, scientific founders of Rome, David Ting and Ben Greenbaum. David's lab has generated an enormous set of compelling preclinical and clinical data showing how dysregulation of repetitive elements is a dominant feature in hard-to-treat tumors. Ben's lab is pushing the envelope, right, and using data sciences to identify repeat sequence patterns associated with biological responses. And these advances uh, convinced me that it was, the time was ripe to exploit this knowledge for drug discovery. In fact, I would say that unless you understand repeats, you cannot truly understand biology and you cannot truly understand disease. And talk to us about where you are now from a company building perspective and from a pipeline development perspective. Rome was founded on the belief that a thorough understanding of repeat biology is going to lead to the identification of novel drug targets that can get at the root causes of disease. And when I started, there was still pretty open-ended, right? Here's an interesting area of biology, here's new technologies, but we need to do uh, to use this with experienced drug discovery, scientists that were hired at the company, to figure out what to work on and how to translate this into actual real drug programs. We were the first company to put a stake in the ground, put all of our focus in um, the breadth of opportunities within the dark genome. And we have a sort of very big emphasis on data science. It's essential to accurately map the expression and activity of these repetitive elements in order to actually differentiate in different disease states, right, to really understand the biology. Big emphasis on chemistry and structural biology. In the two and a half years since we've launched, we've secured about $127 million in financing from top-shot investors from GBR Section 32. We have chosen our primary drug programs. Last year, we publicly disclosed our first target, which was an endogenous reverse transcriptase. We're rapidly advancing this program to the clinic. And these reverse transcriptases are encoded by repetitive elements. And it's also something underappreciated that it's not just viruses that reverse transcribe DNA. We have endogenous viruses that do the same thing. And we've learned that their action leads to the generation of DNA in the cytosol. And this activates nucleic acid sensing receptors just the way viruses activate nucleic acid sensing receptors, and that drives inflammation and drives autoimmune disease in certain patients. And this is the basis of first lead program where you can block this enzyme and essentially ameliorate the pro-inflammatory responses seen in those disease conditions. Great. That's very exciting progress in a short period of time, Dennis. 
Let's talk a little bit about the intersection of biotech and software right now. And you all particularly have a focus on data science. So we'd love to hear your perspective on the application of data science in drug development and perhaps zoom out a bit and just talk about applications across the sector that are exciting to you. Well, obviously, this is the age of big data, right? From sequencing data, from proteomics data, and it's growing and growing, right? In leaps and bounds. In fact, so much so that it's impossible to do what we could once do and look at all the data, right? In a spreadsheet in front of you, right? And interpret it and try to figure out what the patterns and implications are. So the actual artificial intelligence, pattern recognition, and data science has become key to really understanding human biology in this age. And for repeats, it's especially important and especially challenging. All repeats within a family of repeats are not created equal. And so it's really essential to know which specific family members are expressed in different circumstances. And this has been historically incredibly technically challenging due to the very repetitive nature of this sequence information. That is, short-read sequencing cannot differentiate between different repeats. And so, in fact, these types of data have in the past been filtered out as noise in various data analysis pipelines by repeat maskers that are embedded in different pipelines. So we have assembled a world-class team of data scientists to solve this problem. And we're building what we call the Repetomics platform that is uncovering a rich set of information that others typically discard. We've learned how to maximize this information with clever algorithms that can take short read sequence information and map that to specific repeats. We're learning how to best apply long read sequencing to complete the story. And then we're actually learning how to integrate this information with the rest of omics data, right, to really drive causal relationships and point out to which targets we should be going after. This is unique to Rome, and this Repertomics platform is our key competitive advantage, right, in terms of uncovering uh, new targets in this biology. In addition to targets, it also is going to usher in the next generation, we think, of precision medicine approaches. That is, knowing which patients to treat with which drugs. To really do that properly, you need to know which repetitive elements are expressed in different disease states that could respond to our drugs. And so precision medicine has had enormous impacts on the oncology field. Uh, we do believe that the study of repeats in the Repetomics platform we're building is going to allow us to extend this to other disease states, like the first precision autoimmune uh, disease treatments. Great. And we've seen over the last several years, investors that were typically tech investors, you know, the Andreessen's and the GVs of the world have launched several biotech focused funds. I'm curious from a data science perspective, are you seeing folks now that have historically been on the tech side, so as in software engineers at the Airbnbs and Ubers of the world, if you will, that are now being attracted to solving some of the challenges that data science can tackle specifically related to drug development? Yeah, no question. In fact, there are data scientists that are taking up the challenge in their academic careers of trying to understand repeat biology and map them and working on various aspects of that platform. When we recruit these people and show them that there's actually a future right, in drug discovery right, of applying this, there's an incredible amount of excitement right, to move this from an academic to actually a, a practical use of all this incredible technology. And so there's sort of a huge movement to be able to recruit that top team based on that knowledge and information. And that goes across the board. It's becoming quite apparent how to really, essentially, this is not a side job for a typical biologist, right, that can run a data science platform and these sort of dedicated experts, right, to work hand in hand with biologics and biologists and chemists, right, uh, to advance programs. And that is what is really sort of unique and satisfying about Rome. If we have integrated teams of biologists, chemists, 
uh, drug discoverers with data scientists hand in hand, right? And so we show them which problems to solve. They tell us what we can solve, and they actually tell us what other problems we should be looking to solve, right? It's really dynamic interactions that is the basis of what allows our company to progress into really novel areas. Rome recently published an exciting study in, in PNAS. Would love if you could talk to us about the study and what it represents for you and for that patient population specifically. Yeah, we're really excited about this. We just published a study. It's one of the seminal study in PNAS that describes the first ever crystal structure of an endogenous reverse transcriptase protein that was derived from the Conherf-K endogenous repeat. This was something that people have attempted before, but were not able to break through. Um, it was the fruit of a really unique collaboration, actually, between scientists of Rome and driving the research, working hand-in-hand -hand with academic experts and with different CROs, Carl Zerber and Proteris. Uh, we saw the structure where they have additional reverse transcriptase inhibitor complexes that have not yet been disclosed. And I mentioned our keen interest in reverse transcriptases as the first program that we're gearing towards the clinic. And these structures have been of enormous value in helping medicinal chemists design what are best-in-class, first-in-class compounds that really are totally optimized right, for hitting this target and avoiding some of the off-target activities that have been defined in the field. We're also struck in this work by this remarkable similarity between the HERF-K and HIV reverse transcriptase structures, despite quite low sequence homology. And this really reinforced the notion that was learned from decades of research on HIV reverse transcriptase inhibitors, that we can apply that knowledge to these targets to come up with safe and effective therapies. And so different sequences, but structurally very similar, which means that some of the uh, drugs and ways of intervening and hitting these targets, that we also can apply those lessons. As you think about the next five to seven years at Rome, what are you looking forward to and what do you and your colleagues hope to achieve during that time? Yeah, I'm incredibly proud of what we've achieved in what is a pretty short time since our launch, just April 2020. Uh, in just over two years, we've identified multiple targets, unique targets. We've advanced the platform, built a fantastic team of scientists, and the future looks pretty bright. We're in a strong financial position to advance the lead programs. We have an additional pipeline of other programs that we are incubating and, again, marketing towards becoming a clinical company with a rich, rich pipeline. Now, as this field evolves, and it really is taking off right now, what was even just a couple of years ago were uh, publications that were of interest that would appear uh, periodically. And now we see almost every week some other seminal publications coming from laboratories all over the place, right? We kind of the right time in the right place. And as it evolves, we know that others are certainly going to join the bandwagon, right? But we do think that and expect to continue to lead the field of repeat drug discovery and taking this to new directions and new therapeutic areas. Wonderful, Dennis. Yeah, it certainly seems like tremendous progress in a very short period of time. If we uh, now switch gears a little bit and talk about how biotech and pharma are playing together, I'm curious from your perspective, how has that dynamic changed over the last 10 to 20 years? And if you have any thoughts about where it's headed? Certainly, a biotech innovation, it goes back for, for decades, right? But the major advances in drug discovery were still driven by big pharma. It was almost like kind of the minor leagues, if you will, right? That was generating like a promising prospects, right? That big pharma can take over, right? And turn the dial up and move things along. And it really is because of the enormous number of people and expertise and technologies, right, that you need to apply that only big pharma had more unique access to. 
But things are really changing. There's been sort of as the technology evolves, it's becoming more accessible to smaller companies, right? You no longer need $2 million compound collections to find new leads, right? Um, as we make advances in structural biology and virtual screenings and molecular dynamics, it allows other smaller companies, right, with fewer resources to be able to capitalize on this and generate new lead molecules the way that Big Pharma can. And this is actually uh, means that biotech can not only identify new areas and take advantage of new targets and take fantastic observations and groundbreaking research from academic laboratories, right, into early discovery development, but we can take it to the next stage, right, and actually build molecules that can compete with anything that Big Pharma um, can generate. And that essentially is what has kind of even the playing field and is uh, put sort of us into what I would call the new golden age right, of biotech drug discovery. Yeah, I certainly agree that we use that phase often where we feel like we're in the golden age of drug development right now. Just scratching the surface, right? It's been enormous, right? Technologies are still, some of them are still relatively new and being implemented. So we're thinking ahead, right, uh, the next decade, the next two decades. Really anxious to see what comes out of this because it's now time to take all of this information that we gathered with omics and big data and to really apply it, right, in an intelligent, logical way right across the board. And so we can start to imagine what's coming next, but the real innovation we can't imagine yet, but it's there right on the horizon. Yeah. And I'm curious, given what you've seen both in pharma and biotech, you mentioned a lot about the tools and so on. We're both here based in, in Massachusetts. Curious from, from your perspective, how the supportive ecosystem around early stage biotechs has evolved in the last couple of years as well. Yes. One thing, as the biotech field has grown, right, it's been populated with people like me, right, um, many people like me that have come from big pharma, right, and have that experience and have that knowledge and have that network. And so sometimes I almost, I looked at the network of collaborators across different sites when I work for large companies, and I see kind of a similar network, right, of people right within the biotech community that we kind of get to interact with. Like always, we can't share all of our secrets and so forth, right? But the general lessons learned and the approaches, right? We can talk about, we discuss, we can essentially adapt strategies that worked and haven't worked in a collegial way. And so it's a strong community, right? That can support itself and um, leading to sort of tremendous progress. Yeah, certainly agree, Dennis. And taking a, a step back now, and, and if you'll indulge in, in a bit of reflection, as you look back at your career and you think about your younger self, what's one piece of advice that you wish you could provide yourself? Well, one thing I'll say, right, and again, this is starting at Merck in the days when we're all small molecules, right, and uh, biological modalities, right, when I fully appreciate it, right, I would say pay attention, right, to antibodies, pay attention to biologics, pay attention to RNA therapies, right, which, of course, uh, right now is fully appreciated that uh, to be successful, you have to be modality independent and let the science uh, take your word will. But certainly there are opportunities that we could have capitalized, right, if we were sort of willing to think outside the box. And that's uh, always the case. Great. Well, Dennis, it was a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for sharing just a little bit of your background and all the wonderful experiences you've had along the way. Thanks for joining us and, and wishing you continued success at, at Rome Therapeutics. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Biotech2050pod. Again, that's Biotech2050pod. Until next time.